Welcome back. This is part two of our look at farming and biodiversity. It shows just how enormous a part of Irish life farming is that we found it difficult to fit in all that we need to. We're still only scratching the surface, but today we thought we'd start by asking the Brain Trust what did they think about when they think about farms. I kind of think about farmers, like they look after animals and they plant stuff and they hoe. They're basically just gardeners but they have a big area to do it and they have a lot of animals as well. I've been to a farm and I saw lots of different types of animals. I saw cows, sheep and horses, pigs and stuff and chickens. Maybe it would help if we actually went to meet a farmer. So my name is John McHugh and so I am an organic farmer in the parish of Ballyfin which is just outside Port Leash. I milk some cows here and there's some beef animals, there's some pigs and some years we grow cereals, I didn't grow any this year. And I'm the fifth generation of my family to be farming here on this farm. Last year, 2020, I was uh, selected as one of the ambassadors for Farming for Nature. Farming for Nature, I suppose, tries to highlight farmers who are doing different various things for the environment and just trying to, I suppose, build a bit of momentum behind that and encourage other farmers to do similar things. My name is Bridget Barry and I coordinate the Farming for Nature initiative. This is about two years old and it was set up to encourage and inspire farmers that farm or wish to farm more for nature and with nature in mind. We provide lots of resources, we provide lots of peer-to-peer learning so that if they just want to make quick changes to their farm, they can find ways of doing it, various different kind of angles for farmers to find easy information so that they can make small or larger changes on their land for nature. For the last 10 years, I have been working in the Burren and I used to run a charity called Burn Bio Trust. And every year we would hold an awards for the best farmer that had made the biggest changes on his land or her land or the family land. We started to see not only just competitive sense to the whole thing, but it also encouraged other farmers to get on board a bit more because of these awards. After 10 years of working up there, myself and the person who runs the burn programme, Dr Brendan Dumford, we were just looking to see, well, perhaps could we roll this out at a national level, trying to find really good speakers for nature on a national level. But also we had seen in the burn firsthand what farmers can achieve when they're given the right supports, the right technical advice, results-based payments, and just looking at what could be done on a national level because the burn was a good success story. One of the ways we started was our ambassador awards and now we have moved out from that in providing a suite of resources for farmers. We saw in the burn what could be achieved if farmers are given the platform in order to be the spokespersons for nature's. There's so many great farmers doing great work and very often their voice isn't heard. Over time, environment and farming was coming more separate and I think we thought that that shouldn't be the narrative and how do we change that? And one of the ways that we thought we could change it is by getting farmers out to the forefront and tell other farmers what they're doing and what works, but also what doesn't work. You know, every farmer knows their farm best, but it's just providing access to information from other farmers, what worked for them and what didn't work. Because ultimately, farmers are really the first responders to the biodiversity crisis. They have so much potential to change around the problems that we hear on a daily basis. But at the same time, they need to be supported, both in terms of what they're able to do and their resources, but also financial supports. Because farming is an expensive business and it takes a lot to turn the ship around. So what was it that made John change path? 
Well, my father died in 1999. I was in UCD at the time studying agriculture and the neighbour and my sister and we all kind of pitched in to keep it going while I finished out college. It was a busy farm. There was always, every time of the year, you were busy. So I suppose I started to simplify things when I took over so the sheep were sold. Then the beef herd was gradually reduced and the tillage then was gradually reduced as well as a little bit more flexibility came in with milk quotas and there was an opportunity to expand. So... I started, I suppose, aggressively buying milk quota and expanding the dairy herd up to 2015 when I was milking 160 cows and I was ready to kind of make the jump to 200 cows the following year. So each cow, I suppose, can produce around 5,500 litres a year. They can produce vastly more, but that was what my cows were producing. So I was a, a relatively low-input conventional farmer as well so some you know there's a big range we don't realize how much we're often in a herd mentality and just kind of going with the flow so it was it was becoming very popular to expand the dairy herd was profitable i was involved with lots of other farmers who were also expanding their herds and it just seemed like the thing to do According to agriland.ie, when last checked there were over 7 million cattle in Ireland that's everything from cows to calves bulls and other breeds. There's been an increase in milk and dairy production of almost 50% since 2013. The Climate Action Bill will require a slowing of that increase, which is controversial for farmers who have been encouraged to expand. We asked Dr Shane, why do we have such a large herd in Ireland? So one of the arguments for cows in Ireland is that they are much more efficient in terms of carbon in Ireland than they are elsewhere. Cows in Ireland are actually really efficient because they eat grass that grows naturally in the ground. But that doesn't mean that we should be eating that much. That doesn't mean that we should be exporting so much of that cow around the world. If we reduced a little bit of that, then it would have a much, much greater benefit to our climate change battle. Going organic will not be the solution for all farmers, but it was the right one for John. 2014, my first child, Paddy, was born. And I think it brought me in touch with a lot of what maybe I felt deep down that maybe I wasn't consciously thinking about, you know, that I was, you know, just going along with the flow before. But now I started asking questions. If I want to feed the best foods and the organic foods to him and then I'm not doing that myself, you know, it, it, it brings about them questions. And as a farmer, I was in a good position to research and to try and get an understanding of that. And to me, there was no doubt that this was something that was vastly better than was something essential. There was no going back for me once I started down that path. I wholeheartedly embraced it. I suppose we're so influenced by what other people think of what we're doing and what other people think is good farming or good practices. And this extends beyond farming. It it applies to everyone, you know, be it having a nice, neat front garden. You know, if you let your garden grow wild, you know, I'm sure some neighbours might be looking at you and saying, oh, what are you doing there? You know, it's bringing down the the tone of the neighbourhood. We view ourselves through the eyes of other people a lot and farmers are no different, you know, and I think becoming free from that is something we have to do. Such wholesale changes are required that, you know, it's mentally challenging for people to move away from what they always thought was good farming. And good farming was all about neat and tidy and big yields, maximum output, more cows. And we can't change that overnight. It's, It's difficult to change. So... What changes had to be made? In 2015, I was involved in um, Glanbia Monitor Farm Programme, which involved a lot of financial plans and five-year planners. And I suppose that allowed me to sit down and just look at organic as an option. And the more I looked at it, the more it really appealed to me. And I started reading books on it, and I just became 
totally convinced that this was the way I wanted to farm. I was 160 cows in 2015, so today I'm milking 52 cows. There's other stock in the farm as well, but uh, the milking herd has been cut to 52. You could say I've, I've over-halved my stocking rate. A huge amount of bills have reduced, so my cost of production has been vastly reduced. So all the chemical fertilizers, that was probably the biggest bill that I had totally eliminated. I don't feed any concentrates to my animals, so concentrates are like grains and supplements that are fed to boost production. So everything that's produced here is produced off the farm. On conventional farms, we're often buying in a lot of our production. So if you're feeding grains, you're buying in them grains, and so you're feeding that to your cows, and they're producing more milk, but you could largely say you're just buying in that milk. And when you're feeding fertilizers, you're buying in that fertilizer, there's a financial cost to that, and that's boosting your production and giving you more milk, but you're still, you could say you're buying that in. And then there's obviously a big environmental cost to that as well that isn't costed because it's not reflected on, because the true cost of nitrogen fertilizer is vastly higher than the cost we're paying for it. You know, there's a cost in the quality of our food, a cost in animal health, a cost in human health. There's a cost in nitrogen pollution in our waterways, nitrogen pollution in our gra- groundwaters, nitrous oxide in our atmosphere. They affect on biodiversity like butterflies and caterpillars have much lower survival rates when they're feeding on plants that have had nitrogen fertilizer. So if we were to put a true cost on these things, we wouldn't be using them. But we've got to a point where we're kind of semi-dependent on them at this stage. So it's, it's again, it's not just simply banning it and everything comes rosy again. This is the conundrum. It is really tricky, but what benefits did going organic bring? On this farm, anyway. My cows, I'd say, are, are definitely happier <laughs> and more healthy and more content. Again, the number one thing I would say, actually, taking nitrogen probably out of the system, and um, because nitrogen is applied to you know our grasslands to to increase growth rates, but there's lots of health implications for nitrogen. Proteins are mainly made up of nitrogen, and sometimes when you put out a lot of nitrogen, you know you don't get complete proteins formed and you'll tend to see more issues like lameness in cows, you'll have more cases of mastitis, lots of different negative health correlations with nitrogen. The animal health improves, firstly, because I destocked and had lower numbers, so for me, obviously, there's a a much easier way of life, a slower way of life. Now I have more facilities for my animals as well, so they, you know, in the wintertime, even when they're indoors, they have more space, so there's there's a l- less stress on them, I suppose. And then they're, they're, they have bigger areas per cow, so again, there's less bullying within the herd, so there's lots of positives on that side as well. One thing we mentioned last week was the disconnection people feel from the food that they eat. The fact that we don't all think about where it comes from. And a lot of that comes from a disconnection from nature. I know we have lots of public spaces and lovely parks and stuff, but they're all very, I suppose, you can look but you can't touch. You know, they're they're places you go for a walk, but you can't really fully interact or work with the soil or, you know, just really engage and be part of a place. So I think we need more spaces where we can be a little bit more interactive with the environment. We've become so insular and so we're all in our own little castles, I suppose, and disconnected, I suppose, and, you know, our connection is through technology, maybe, and it's a very unconscious connection, I suppose, and, you know, it's the same, our connection with land and our food, it's through supermarkets and through advertising campaigns, and it's all completely unconscious connection, and when we have that unconscious connection, we can be manipulated very easily or we can be led to believe this is what sustainable is and so I think we have to really build real community I think that's what we read the challenge that is ahead of us and it's only only real community can actually deal with the problems we're facing. During the first lockdown 
many kids and families decided to use the time to get growing. People who know me say that I have green fingers. That doesn't mean I've got literal green fingers. It means I'm good at plants. During lockdown 2020, I growed plants out the front of my house with the rest of my family. My uncle and my cousins are growing carrots and we are growing blackberries. In our study of nature classes, we went and grew cress from pots. I have an allotment with my dad and my nana and we grow a lot of different plants there. And we just recently planted some butternut squash and courgettes, so I'm looking forward to having them as well. I like to water the plants. I like to take care of the plants. I like to look at the frogs, even though I don't like them, I like to look them. In our old apartment, we used to grow peas and... Me and my friends used to steal them when they weren't ready. I've been planting apple trees for years. I just take seeds out of the apples and I put them in pots. When they get big enough, I put them outside. And when people saw this, they said it probably wouldn't grow. But you never know. All mine grew. We have been growing food in our Cabra garden for a few years now. Last year I planted potatoes. They grew very well and they tasted great. We grew a lot of things and we always eat them, if they're edible, obviously. Planting takes a lot of patience. Sometimes you think it won't grow, but you just have to keep trying. Because when that plant grows, you're going to feel so proud. I have grown mushrooms, but I didn't grow them. My fairy did. I never grew anything in my life. You grew a plant out in the school garden. Yeah, but, well, I helped my granddad put potatoes in the soil. Nice. But that's all. You get a seed and you dig a hole in the ground with a shovel. And you put the seed in it and you bury it up and you water it. And the sun gives it sun and it will grow. You get the same feeling from growing a rose than from growing a dandelion. It doesn't matter how expensive or fancy the plant is, what colours it has, it's the fact that you grew it, you looked after the plant, gave it water and it grew. We're in the middle of a biodiversity crisis with everything from microorganisms in our soil to birds, plants and animals in our landscape under threat. And that's why it's so important that all landowners, farmers among them, act to support nature rather than damage it further. We're at the edge of the forest garden that has been planted up in recent years and there's lots of long grass, lots of buttercups in front of us, there's nettles and we're approaching a little grove that my father planted in 1999. He planted it for the millennium. It's a small little corner, it was a corner off a field. There's like a, a long history of being encouraged, I suppose, to be more productive, to be more efficient, to be more economically viable. So this has been encouraged through EU grants, EU funding, government efforts to drain land and just obviously coming from, you know, parents and families and neighbours and peer pressure and all of these things, you know, to be an efficient, to be a productive farmer. Psychologically that there's a, a big build up you know, that this is what good farming looks like. You know, trees were never part of good farming. (laughs) And even more so, the likes of nettles and any scrubby vegetation, you know, they're even more stigmatised, I suppose. And yet there's so much, we're, we're, I suppose, relearning the value of all of these things. And a lot of the biodiversity that's at threat are living on these nettles and blackberries and all of these things that, that we never could find a place for them on our farm. When you do make changes to your farm to make space for nature, as well as food production... What happens? So this is a silage field. So this, five or six years ago, would have been largely a monoculture. 
of just perennial ryegrass with some white clover. You can see it has uh, transitioned hugely. So this was completely yellow two or three weeks ago with dandelions. Almost completely yellow, more yellow than green. And now we can see the little white heads of the dandelions ready to blow. You can see there's various different types of grasses. So I suppose over time, diversity starts to return. It's a slower process than sometimes we'd like, but the stuff we don't superimpose is going to be management related and it's going to be a slower time process. Any farmer I know wants the best for their land. So they're not spreading fertilizers, they're not spraying pesticides because they have disregard for their land. They're doing all these things because that's what they actually think is good for their land. They think by adding nitrogen to it, they're increasing the fertility. And there's companies and lots of research and all that are encouraging this behavior, I suppose. And economically then, that's what pays bills as well. It's hard to break that mentality. And so for me, that is the number one thing, I suppose. Obviously, I could be an outlier, but I'm in a circle of maybe increasing. There's a lot more outliers because people are starting to question what they were doing. And, you know, a neighbour of mine I just recently visited has put in a two-acre pond on his farm, and he's an intensive dairy farm. There's still huge change required. Every farm has diversity. No matter how intensive they are, they'll have a certain range of diversity there. And I think when you allow things to flower and seed, which is something we often try and stop happening in intensive farming, you just see massive insect populations. You know, it's, that's where the magic really happens when things start to flower and seed. Spiders, all kinds of flying insects. And then that has a knock-on effect because there's also more seeds, but all these little birds, grasshoppers, you get huge amounts of increase in all of these kind of things. So that was quite notable to, to see that. There was a lot of hedgerows on the farm. My father had planted a lot. He took out a lot of hedgerows in the 1970s and felt guilty about it in the 90s and had replanted lots of diversity in hedgerows as well. They have continuously been expanding and I suppose, again, I take for granted the amount of wildlife, you know, loads of little birds, there's snipe, there's yellowhammer, there's lots of birds that are even, you know, on the threatened list. Pine martin, fox, squirrels, they're they're all here, otters. As you become more appreciative of these things, you start noticing these things. So that's not to say a lot of these things weren't there before, but you really start to pay attention. Lots of biodiversity that grabs headlines is above ground, but that's only a fraction of the story. The life within the soil is often the, the hidden part, you know, it's something we ignore. There's vastly more life in a teaspoon of soil. There's, you know, millions of different microorganisms. And again, when you stop using chemical fertilizers, these are soluble fertilizers that have a quite a negative, they're salt based, they'll, you know, they'll have a negative effect on earthworms and on all the fungi and various different microorganisms. And so you'll see a vast increase in them also. So earthworm numbers, for instance, would have doubled or trebled. Soil is one of the least valued resources we have in the world, I think. A bit better valued nowadays, but in the past we didn't really value it. We thought that it would always be there, that we could keep on using it, and that if we just kept the nutrients in the soil, if we let it rest for a while, then it would come back and we'd use it again. And we're starting to realise that that's not really the case in that soil is so, so precious. And just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's really, really important. And it is. So it has nutrients, but it's also got all kinds of animals in there that regulate those nutrients and that give it back. And we don't really understand a lot about that. So we need to maybe study it a bit more, but we also need to start respecting it before we know everything about it. Because in some of these areas, we wait until we understand everything and then we go and protect it. And if you wait that long, it might not be there in the first place to protect. So we need to protect and study and understand at the same time. Climate change is now going to start reducing the amount of land we have available to farm. So those areas around the equator, for example, that are going to get much drier and much hotter with much less rain, they won't be able to farm anymore, or as much as they used to. 
So that's going to put much more pressure on the other bits of land, like Ireland or in Northern Europe or in North America, where we now have to produce a lot more food than we ever did. Not to feed ourselves, because we've always got lots more food in Ireland than we need, but to feed the rest of the world. That's a pheasant airplane. I was making kind of a little amphitheatre over here, so I excavated a bit of soil out, and it was also with the potential to see whether a little pond can be built here. There is a natural spring here, but all of this land, as much of the land in the country, has been drained. We have changed the landscape vastly more than we realise, and I suppose in draining land, we have reduced the habitat for so much more of the wet grassland birds and insects and frogs and lizards and every kind of things. This farm probably would have been once, you know, much more mixed in, you know, it would have been wet areas and dry areas where now, you know, it's artificially a lot more dry than it should be. And that has big implications on water and how quickly water reaches rivers, how much sediment gets carried with it and nutrients gets carried with it. I think all of these things are allowing land to be its natural self, I suppose. And how can we fit in with that? Because we can separate ourselves even more from nature and rewild big chunks of it and realise now our existence is dependent on farming other areas more intensively or exploiting other areas more intensively or maybe artificial foods. For me, the big question is how do we almost rewild ourselves in line with rewilding nature? Given that we're spending time on an organic farm, it makes sense that we check in with the conventional dairy farm too. And who better to tell us all about it than the kids whose dad and granddad run it? My name is Mary Kate and I've just turned 10. Hi, I'm Michael and I'm Ace. We live at Lock By. We currently live in the town, but we're building a house out in the grass and the farm. So we'll be moving out there very soon. And we can't wait for it. There's a farm in it where my dad runs his farm that was passed on to him by his parents. And he has a lot of cows. Uh, there could be about 63. We've got many more cows, because that's a farmer's secret. There's a heifers. Mary, you can't make heifers. I know, but some are for beef, and that's the lame ones and cows. Some of them are heifers, which we keep every year, and we put them in calf, which means they'll be pregnant soon, they'll do other calves, and then they'll grow up to cows, and then you can make them. Listen, cows can be like chicken. They're very calm. It's just they're a bit stubborn sometimes. Well, no, but they don't like getting milk. After a couple of years, they're grand, actually. Yeah, they're used to it, so they don't mind us. That's the ones that are more older and used to it, like. And then when they poo on you, it's really annoying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you do. <laughs> you still might get a splash or something. Yeah, sure. And the wee stuff. Yeah. Silage is something what we use to feed the cows in the winter. It smells really sweet. Yeah. They do gas, which yeah. is bad for the atmosphere. But do Michael and Mary Kate see things changing on their farm? Our farm is environmentally friendly, like a bit I could say. But I do think it will be more environmentally friendly because if the government are advising you to be environmentally friendly now, like I suppose you just have to imagine what it would be like. 30 years time. It has its impacts on farming, like, because fertilising, yeah. The tool is not to use fertilizer. I think it's kind of bad as chemically going to ground, I'm not sure. Life on a farm can be pretty all-encompassing. Summer is the busiest time of year because, like, we have our jobs. Like, we have to feed the calves, we have to as well make sure that there's no calves calving during the winter as well, actually. We have a good few things to do. And spring, um, and because spring. Um, the cows are calving, could be out any time in the morning. Well, even during the night. Yeah. yeah. This year we had 300 calves. 
most of them boys go. The important thing about heifers is they produce babies and they produce milk, whereas boys don't. They have hens and my granny always thinks they're not laying eggs, but it's only because we can't take She doesn't know this, but we do give her some. I want to be a farmer when I grow up because you can drive things, you can do fencing, you can do contracting for other people, you are allowed as well to make roads, you're allowed to dig what you want. So you do lots of things I like. I wouldn't like to take over like because it's a lot of work. That's but I definitely I definitely would like to go out over the weekends and stuff when I'm older and help out. I I would definitely be a vet because um I love animals very much and I think that's thanks to the farm. As we've heard, every farm has a huge potential for nature. They grow a lot of bushes and trees. Skiak bushes. They are good fencing for the cows. What I think is very important about planting the trees is that um, the birds, because they can lay their nests. If you went inside the ring fort, you'd see a couple of beehives and uh, there's flowers all over it, which just grow. And they get the pollen out of that and they go back to their hive. We do worry like Like we keep well, We do trees. planting trees. Yeah. We have a woodlands over in Coffs Grange. It's quite big now. The government won't let us get rid of them unless we have another forestry place to replant. It makes sense to have the forestry though, doesn't it? Well, yeah, but we kind of need a field over here. So, Michael. Mary Kate, how do you see your farm changing into the future? Solar panels. We would use solar panels yeah. because, well, we would have to have a backup electricity in case the sun doesn't do it. But we also, yeah, of course we would use it. One thing you'd want to learn before you become a farmer, how to be a mechanic, cause lots of things, or hydraulics and stuff, break. Kids should know a bit more about farming because they need to know where their food comes from and how hard the people will work to get food on the table. If you didn't know where it comes from, you don't really know what you're eating, do you? I'm never going to be able to say, nope, cause then I won't be able to eat deer, beef, and then rare on that. Evolution! Nature is a little unpredictable, but over the last few hundred years, humans have worked hard to impose order. This was to allow an increase in productivity or simply to ensure our green spaces were neat. But biodiversity habitats aren't neat. It is hard to see your way back from habits that have grown over time. What's needed is a sea change, and one all of us can be part of. So, what if you're a kid who lives in a farm and you'd like to be part of that change? Farming for Nature have some brilliant gardens. If I was a young person and they wanted to make small changes around their farm, they work with their parents on the farm, etc. You can go online on our website and we have a whole section called Your Farm. And under that, there's a section called Where to Start. And it kind of breaks down for you just simple, quick things that you can do. Maybe you don't want to read through how to manage hedgerows or you might have a bit of a a river or a stream and you want to encourage your father or your mother to maybe fence it off and see what wildlife comes there throughout a certain time of the year and then you can graze it. But the illustrations and the very clear outlines will tell you what you can do. So if you wanted a project for school or something, one of the first things you could do is just see what you have out there. Spend some time out there. Just see what birds you have. Are they using certain trees? Could you encourage them a bit more by putting up more bat boxes? Do a little map of the farm. Maybe looking at 
discussing with your parents would it be nicer for the cattle or the sheep whatever kind of system that you have to create a bit more diversity within that for next year maybe put together a plan even like not asking them to change everything because they might not want to but maybe they could lend you as such a project of an acre or part of the land and then best practice guidelines have some really nice illustrations say you have wetlands or woodlands or whatever we have kind of an illustration what a poor one looks like what a moderate one looks like and then what really good management looks like so even yourself you can look at the illustrations and go um yeah maybe the farm that i live on fits under the moderate could i make it better or maybe it fits under the poor could we get it up to moderate within a year or two you're part of this farm this is the place you're growing up this is your future as well and sometimes it's just nice to be involved and you know if you can help wildlife along like they need homes as well they need shelter they need clean water they're not like us where they can just go down to the shop and buy something they don't have they actually have to get it all off your land so if you can provide clean and diverse food and water for them you're going to attract more and more species and then you can create small changes because this is where you would like to be looking at for the next 10, 20, 30, maybe 50, 60 years, you might be lucky that this might be the place that you'll be living on for the rest of your life. And wouldn't it be nice if it was somewhere that you really, really enjoyed living for a long, long time? What John, Farming for Nature and many other farmers are trying to do is change. And change is hard, especially when money is on the line. Regulation has a lot to answer for, I suppose, in what has happened with hedges and and nature in general. Nature doesn't pay bills as such. Cows pays bills or more milk pays bills. And so straight away, that's an incentive. You know, nature has to compete against capitalism. You know, and I, I don't think we can reduce something as complex as nature down to a commodity. or We'll always miss something. A lot of farmers depend on single farm payments to allow their farms to operate. But in recent years, farmers weren't rewarded for efforts to help nature. This is changing, but not without criticism. Last week saw a protest from some farmers over the changes to CAP. This week, many farmers in the IFA are protesting against the passage of the Climate Action Bill. Some farmers feel that the changes required of agriculture will damage the industry. It's currently responsible for about 35% of our greenhouse gas emissions, and this will have to reduce in line with all of the other industries. If you read Farmer's Journal, you'll see a very different vision of, uh, of Irish agriculture or of the world. And the good, the bad and ugly, they're all happening. And so I think we have to find what we resonate with. And, and rather than fighting what we don't, Farming for Nature, I really resonate, I suppose, with the approach they're taking. It's very positive. It's an approach that brings people together and avoids that polarity that's happening in so many places. And just the other farmers that I've met through it have been so inspiring for me. Like, I think if you go on and watch any of the videos, every one of them have been inspiring for me. It kind of highlights how there's so much more wisdom and knowledge and things happening that then maybe people realise. You know, there's a saying, where the attention goes, the energy flows. And so I think that's what we have to do. We have to put our attention on the positive. And that's not to say we ignore and, and bury our heads in the sand about the negative, but in building the positive, we strengthen ourselves to take on the challenges of the negative. So focus on what's strong and not what's wrong. So instead of feeling overwhelmed, let's do that. Let's build on the good work that's already started and see if there's a way that farming and nature can coexist. There aren't any overnight solutions, but through a systemic change and grassroots farmers leading the way, with patience, change can happen. Huge thanks to John McHugh, Bridget from Farming for Nature, Michael and Mary-Kate, as well as our brain trust. Oh, and this cow. I didn't realise just how long a cow could wee for until I visited a farm.
Collusion was produced by Nikki Coughlin for RTE Junior Radio. This is our RTE Junior!